Breathe in the love of God. Breathe out any hate you might be feeling. And breathe in the peace of God. And breathe out any violence. And breathe in the hope of God, which is inexplicable, but very real. With eyes still closed, slowly bring awareness to this body which God created for you. God, we thank you for our bodies and how they help us move through this life. Now bring awareness to your head. Notice your tongue. Maybe it's on the roof of your mouth. Maybe it's relaxed. But we thank God for giving us tongues with which to sing and to speak. And then we notice the temples, the tops of our head. And we say, thank you, God, for minds and for the complexity of our minds that allow us to consider and comprehend all which you have created. And now bring awareness to your hands. You don't have to move them, but they're there. Thank you, God, for giving us hands with the ability to hold the hand of loved ones. Hands with the ability to work in the dirt. Hands that can write letters and make signs of affirmation and peace and calls for justice. And now I invite you to bring awareness to your chest. I invite you to move your hands over your heart. This is a posture of devotion. Maybe you can feel your heart beating. Maybe you can feel your chest rise and fall with the breath. We give thanks for our lives, God, and the blood that sustains us. We give thanks, God, for a heart that is capable of loving and receiving love. We come to you, God, to be found more alive in you. We know that we are yours. We are your people. We belong to you and you to us. We are yours. Amen. So Paul is probably one of my least favorite people ever. <laughs> but Paul was really weary when writing this letter. Maybe he's like a parent after a long day or a manager of many people. He just longs for one evening of quiet to himself, one moment to relax his shoulders after listening to these constant complaints and mediating petty conflicts and putting out tiny fires and anything that distracted him from the things that really mattered in the world. Paul, you know, simply cares about sharing the good news of Jesus with people who desperately need good news in their life, good news of hope and wholeness. But you know what? Paul was road weary. 
Because since the scales had fallen from his eyes, he had spent his conversion years traveling across the countryside, sailing across seas to reach the edges of the known world to plant churches among other people. And he was this great community organizer. He went around shaking hands and kissing babies, posing for photos, engaging with his base, writing letters, and sending representatives on his behalf. Paul was tired because he had been tilling the soil of people's hearts. He had been depositing seeds of faith and coaxing stalks of leadership from the earth to grow. And his earliest accomplishments was one blossom of a Christian church in a metropolitan city called Corinth. This was one of these big churches that had bloomed in this post-death, overcome-by-resurrection kind of world. And Paul felt confident in what he had accomplished there, so he moved on. He went to Ephesus. He sailed to a smaller town across the Aegean Sea. He left that larger community in Corinth, confident in his abilities to continue to share the good news, but confident in their abilities to continue to live out the good news with each other. And then, like an early morning tweet, Paul heard from the community which he had just left. They said, at, at Apostle Paul, former Saul, some people have gotten scales in their eyes, forgotten your instruction, and given up on the at real Jesus Christ, and they followed this other guy instead. Hashtag sad. <laughs> and Paul, remembering his movement throughout the city streets, remembering that he had built relationships with these people. He had created consensus and organized folks toward a shared vision of God's goodness for the world. He just sighed in exasperation. The people of Corinth had somehow lost their way. They were experiencing growing pains of an early movement. They had outgrown, out-exercised, and kind of tossed out some of the theology which Paul had shared with them in this earlier ministry. And so they were overcrowded, over-opinionated, and a bit directionless, and the people of this megachurch began to argue about things that most churches argue about, like doctrine, orthodoxy, praxis. And like so many families and growing organizations, they began to experience controversies because they were made up of a bunch of complicated people. And so, what you need to know about this letter which we've read from today is that the group was divided. They had created these rival factions like Sharks versus Jets or Kanye versus Taylor Swift or <laughs> Banner versus Kushner. Like, they were all up in each other's business and the group could not agree on how to align around vision or spiritual practice or daily life. So staunchly they were divided in how best to offer grace and accountability that they forgot that there were some of these uniting elements of their faith, like overcoming love, overcoming hate with love, overcoming war with peace, and overcoming death with life. So Paul wrote to them, because they had written him first with this litany of questions like, what about this, or what about that, or hey, there's this guy sleeping with his stepmom, or hey, somebody's suing so-and-so, or hey, they kept suing each other, and now the thing is growing, and everybody's just in the court system, tying up the legal system. And so Paul, I imagine, is like shaking his head over all of this, sips another glass of wine, and then he plays Judge Judy, 
in his letter calling everyone saying, that is baloney. Don't you know, he asked with a rhetorical question, probably with some condescension, there are people who just won't inherit the kingdom of God for being unjust. Don't you know? And while the community is torn, Paul begins to attempt reconciliation for the people by providing answers. Yes, he spells it out, but also by pointing to them to things that united them. He does this by opening with language of freedom. Freedom of the body and freedom found in Christ. And for Paul, freedom is not this like willy-nilly freedom. It's not the freedom to hurt other individuals and discriminate against others kind of freedom. No, Paul's idea of freedom is not a freedom based out of fear, but a freedom that is inspired and uplifted by a life modeled after Christ. It is a freedom that addresses fear, actually, head on, says, I see you fear. It says, I will uproot all of this anxiety and out of experience. And it frees individuals and communities to be more authentically themselves. So Paul writes about freedom, freedom of Christ with helpful limitations, which encourage bonds between individuals and people who were once kept apart. And then it gets a little weird again. Yeah, this is why I hate Paul. Like the seasons suddenly change and he shifts his attention from freedom to shame and he launches into comments about sexuality, fornication, sexual immorality, and uses metaphors comparing sex workers to one's relationship with God. And these combined with like the church's history of overarching themes of hate body hate, self-hate, hating or valuing certain bodies over others have led people to hurt and abuse others, particularly, I would say, abuse women, people of color, women of color, transgender women. And thus we live in this history, this legacy of people who have been socialized to normalize the manipulation of how our bodies appear. We've been socialized and manipulated to believe what is good about bodies. And I must admit, I really do struggle with Paul and his letter that brings up a lot of body shaming or sex shaming. Because, this might be a surprise to you, but unlike Beyonce, I did not wake up like this. <laughs> Most often, I wake up in the morning and I drag my tired butt to the mirror and examine all these new flaws that are stamped across my face from a restless night of sleep or too much wine, or not enough fresh vegetables. So all these new lines across my forehead and hairs growing from weird places, and then like sweat stains. I like to give the impression that I'm flawless though. So I wax the hairs on my chinny chin chin, and I smear creams all over my edge, ever aging face, and I hide my sweat stains under dark clothing. But these are habits. These are habits I will continue, don't worry, but these are habits <laughs> that I have learned. I've learned them from a world that read Paul's language about freedom and freedom of the body, self-discipline and self-care. I've learned it from a world that heard Jesus' words about, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. I've learned these practices from a world that heard all of those messages and said, nah, brah, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And so I learned to question the value of my body in a world where news anchors and presidents are able to grab people with impunity, where some bodies are treated as criminal and other bodies are treated as citizens, where bodies swing from invisibility to visibility, or exploitation to empowerment, or shame to celebration. And I'm still here. Over the years, I've nursed the wounds left by Paul's words, but I've also spent a lot of time thinking about this guy that I've hated. And I've nursed a little bit of compassion for Paul. Because he's this somewhat complex and mythical figure that once, we didn't read about it today, but once beat the bodies of people who believed in Jesus. That once his eyes flaked scaly skin after a man who feared for his life touched Paul. Paul knows what bodies are like. Paul values bodies because he has this particular experience. Actually, Paul's experience is indelibly bodily because on the road, he encountered an embodiment of God in a queer and inexplicable manner. Therefore, I think now Paul takes bodily activity really seriously. And it's no wonder he responds to the Corinthians in this very extra sort of fashion. He says, avoid porneia. That's the Greek word that he uses here, that some people translate fornication, some people translate sexual immorality, some people say debauchery. Whether it's sexual or not sexual immorality, it's something that we know it when we see it. He says it not as a condemnation, not as a condemnation of sex workers, not as a condemnation of those who use others or abuse others for sexual means, but as a way of offering grace for those who need to remember that their body is worthy of gracious pleasure, that it's worthy of merciful joy and radiant with healing. Paul writes that bodies remember trauma and that bodies heal themselves. The bodies have the power to feel particularities and bodies have the power to unite as one. That bodies will one day die and somehow be raised to newness of life. Paul knows this because he is a part of this community where when Jesus breathed his last breath, there was this curtain that separated the holiest space where God's presence resided. That curtain was torn in two after Jesus breathed and God's body was broken before the whole world, thus sending God's spirit tumbling out into the community, into the hearts and bodies and minds of all humankind. And therefore, Paul says, your body is now, your body is now the temple where God's spirit resides. You are to totally glorify God with your body. Not by denying your body, not by hiding your body under large layers of clothing, not by critically examining your body in the mirror for your flaws, but by incorporating your body as a manner and mode of worship. So the Holy Spirit whispers. We've sang about it a lot this morning. But she calls you to shout, Glory, 
with your body. And maybe that looks different for everyone. Maybe shouting glory or whispering glory with your body is by rubbing lotion over your skin, gently reminding you that your body is valuable and beautiful just as it is. Or maybe it's using your legs, these powerful and maybe stretch mark covered things to march down the street and your arms to hold up signs that say fossil fuels should be no more. Maybe that's how you glorify God with your body. Or maybe it's using these arms to hold someone really tight and remind them that they are not alone. And that's how you glorify God with your body. The Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, does not whisper to us to avoid bad things, but tugs and pulls us to prioritize our bodies and minds to drink water, to take your meds, and to call your people and say, you matter. Your body matters. But I should caution we do not do this work alone. And this is not a reference to sex, but it could be if you wanted to go there. But glorifying God with your body is not something that should be done in secret or something done as an individual because it's not something that should be something that should be ashamed of. What is shameful is when communities try to stigmatize or exile or criminalize certain bodies. So when individuals and communities come together and think less of their body, that something sexual or not so sexual is shameful, that's when bodies can be shamed. When bodies are forced to struggle or merely survive rather than thrive, that is sexual or not so sexual immorality. But when the community of God sees the bodies for what they are, maybe they're differently abled or differently sized or differently colored, but when the community of God sees those bodies and calls them good and beautiful because of those differences, that is the glory of God, the glorification of God. And the glorification of God is not perfect by any means because there still are hairs on this chinny chin chin. There still are sweat stains underneath this hot day. But that's okay because Jesus, after he had been raised from the grave, did not present this pristine body free of scars to people. Instead, he presented a body full of scars and took people's hands and shoved them into the wombs because our bodies will never be free of scars. And I'm sorry to say they will probably not be free of stretch marks. In fact, these scars, these particularities of our body map the glorification of God. Our bodies are not wrong or in need of perfection, but it's actually our idea of perfection that needs restoration and transformation on behalf of God. We need to be healed from what we believe perfection of bodies looks like. And so our bodies are in need of care to glorify God. Our bodies are in need of care to glorify the God who created these bodies, who shaped the curl of our ear, and the flattening of our noses and the fingers within somebody's womb. 
Because God's grace is evident in bodily experiences because bodies in the community of God inform us of the shape of Jesus. Let's pray. Creator, God, you created the universe. From the dust of stars, you created us, and so the dust of the stars makes up our being. You made the world in beauty and restore all things to glory through Jesus Christ, and so we pray that wherever your image is disfigured, maybe it's disfigured by poverty or selfishness or war or greed, May the new creation of Jesus Christ appear in justice and love and peace. Transform our, our ideas of perfection to your ideas of glorification so that we may continue to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.